Welcome to Ethics in Action, brought to you by the Applied Ethics Center at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dive into crucial conversations with academics and policymakers as we explore the crossroads of ethics and public affairs. Good morning. This is uh, Nira Zakovich, and this is the Ethics in Action podcast from the Applied Ethics Center at UMass Boston. And today we are having a conversation with uh, Jay Hughes from uh, the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies in UMass Boston, and uh, Alex Stubbs, who is a postdoc at UMass Boston's Applied Ethics Center and at the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies. Uh, Jay is a um, bioethicist and a, a sociologist who's done uh, years and years of work on uh, uh, questions of the ethics of emerging technologies. Alex's uh, uh, recent research has uh, been on the democratizing uh, of work. And uh, in the last few weeks, we've produced a, a policy paper, white paper on um the uh, challenges and opportunities and regulations of uh, the metaverse. So our conversation today is uh, going to revolve around uh, the metaverse. So with that, good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. Morning. Um, so let me uh, ask maybe this kind of a simple question that I've heard asked a lot. What is the metaverse? Well, <clears throat> this is, I think, um, uh, a deeper question, and it's one that we um, kind of hint at in the essay. Um, I have been online for 35 years and um, remember the initial virtual reality hype around people like Jaron Lanier back 30, you know, a long time ago. And then I participated in Second Life, and I've done a little gaming. I've never owned a VR headset, but... Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, obviously the reason that we got interested in this question um, this year was that Meta, the Facebook company, and Mark Zuckerberg had made this dramatic turn and invested a bunch of resources in trying to create what he was going to call the metaverse. And then everyone was trying to respond to that and say, you know, well, uh, what are the problems with that? Or is this a dystopian nightmare? And um, uh, what, what would it really take to have a metaverse? And I think the the idea of the metaverse that we outline in the paper is the broader concept of um, uh, framework for all interlocked um, virtual worlds so that you would be able to walk from one to another. Um, and, you know, that there might be we propose at the end that there might be public spaces as well, not just private corporate spaces. But a lot of the issues that arise around the metaverse is how much corporate control is going to be allowed in these spaces. How are you going to be able to set all the rules, or, or is there going to be some kind of uh, control over harassment policies or um, the way that you try to influence people's purchasing decisions and so forth? So we tried to focus some of that in the paper, which we'll talk about in a second. But I think the other thing that we that I discovered with this is that, you know, I saw this as, a, as an exercise for me in trying to articulate a techno-progressive point of view, which I've always defined as um, taking seriously technologies which are a little bit beyond the horizon that most people are looking at, um, trying to steer between techno-hype and, and Luddism, trying to argue that most of the issues that people point to with technology are actually socio-political issues. Um, and this, and the metaverse is certainly in that category, but I think we got stuck in a little bit of the meta, uh, the hype cycle around the metaverse because um, the hype cycle, which has gone through a number of hypes over the, over the last couple of decades, but um, the hype got very big in the last year and then collapsed all of a sudden and was kind of put in its coffin by chatbots. But the two things are actually connected and 
the metaverse technologies aren't really going away, even if the, the collapse of the hype means that some companies are not going to be successful, the technology is still developing. And, and I think one of the larger questions that hangs over the paper about what is the metaverse is whether um, augmented reality is, you know, how, how augmented reality relates to a full virtual experience. The way that I imagine these things is that there will probably be the development of applications other than just you know, a one or two hour game that you play um, that keep people in virtual reality. And one of the kinds of things might be like for work, we talk about in the paper, for work, people might enter um, virtual spaces in order to have virtual meetings with people. So, um, and, so yeah. Jay, let me just interrupt you for a second and ask you. So, yeah. I, and I'll definitely put a link to the uh, white paper in the uh, show notes. But would it be fair to say that uh, the metaverse is just a sort of a shortcut name for, uh, if you will, the future of the internet that becomes the second sort of internet 2.0, which is more immersive, more dependent on virtual reality? Uh, it just sort of uh, general name for uh, uh, more immersive uh, internet technologies that will allow for uh, more engaging play, work, study uh, online? Well, that's where, where this inter augmented reality question comes in. And I don't think, I think we could have done more with that in the essay um, and our thinking about it, but um, it's really hard to predict how this is going to go because I think the, it's always going to be easier for people to um, play with a virtual thing that is in a real space. <laughs> in other words, you, you don't want to have to, um, you know, sit on a couch the whole time that you're doing this. You want to be able to walk around and, you know, drink your coffee or whatever and know where it is and in, in the place that you're in. So the, I think uh, the idea that augmented reality may take off faster than actual full virtuality is an important one. And it, and it may, but I think everything that we say about um, virtual reality also applies then to augmented reality. So that was the kind of fudge that we did. Is we're, we're talking about a totally virtual world, but it may actually look like augmented reality. Yeah. And you know, I'll add to your point, Jay, that you know, there there is something here too. Your question's a good one, Nir. You know, is this sort of an extension of um, the sort of pre-existing internet. And I think many of the, the questions that we ask and many of the policy proposals that we point to, they do apply to the current, uh, the current model of the internet that currently exists even before we think about questions about augmented and virtual reality. And so in some ways, I think the, the, the paper that we have produced here is, is also applicable to the current way that the, the internet functions. Um, and questions about digital divides, privacy and autonomy, competition, antitrust, all of these kinds of questions, questions about workers' rights and what work is, is going to look like in the future applies to the current ways that the internet functions. In many ways too, I think we're, we're, we're thinking that, you know, the metaverse is likely to be born out of something that looks like the kinds of companies that already um, come to dominate the internet, right? And so in some ways, it, it is kind of a, a natural extension of these kinds of questions. And I think the paper is not only relevant in terms of thinking about the metaverse, but also thinking about the ways that we have failed to properly regulate the internet as it currently exists, um, and then extending that sort of into potential futures. Right. Yeah, I think we, we do pretty good at emphasizing that point throughout the paper, that there's a continuity of regulatory issues ever since the internet, at least, um, with the metaverse regulatory issues. And, and I, I see this as a key techno-progressive point that people are constantly ending up Luddite because they think this technology is gonna cause this social effect. And it's like, no, look, if you look back 50 years, there was the same debate, it was a different technology, but it was the same issues and the issues are caused by capitalism and authoritarianism and so forth. Right. So that's a really interesting question that some of the main uh, regulatory and uh, uh, philosophical questions just keep uh, uh, recurring. And uh, there's a benefit to figuring them out almost in any technological context, uh, because then you've uh, uh, figured out at least a, a version of them that you can use in the future. 
So just for the benefit of our listeners, I'll uh, uh, quickly sort of uh, characterize the difference uh, and tell me if this is fair between augmented and virtual reality. So augmented reality would be something like walking down the street with a, a version of Google Glass and getting a, uh, a historical overview of a building that you look in. That, that, that you look at uh, or getting some extra information about stuff that you encounter in physical reality. And then virtual reality would be a sort of way upgraded uh, uh, version of the Zoom call, for example, that we're having now. Namely, you know, we would all be in some kind of uh, virtual space wearing glasses and being able to feel as if we're interacting uh, in the same room uh, about some of the same things, even though we're in completely different uh, areas. And uh, our focus primarily in the paper has been uh, on the latter because of its uh, uh, potential for uh, work and education, but part of what you're saying is, uh, I'm hearing it, is that the same kind of questions uh, apply um, to uh, the augmented reality stuff and to the internet more broadly. Uh, so but I, I think the metaverse, the full virtual reality idea pushes people's buttons in a different way than augmented reality does. I mean, right. people may remember the Pokemon Go craze. No one was really freaking out about that. They thought it was funny. But the idea of people crawling up into virtual reality and not moving a muscle all day, I think that freaks people out. And so there is, at the beginning of the essay, we had to address the questions of, is this an inauthentic way to live? Is this a distraction from real life? This kind of contrast that most people have in their mind between doing that and living a real life and so we had to address that yeah so so, so maybe let's go let's go there if we assume that the context where virtual reality is going to be most promising uh have to do with virtual work so not just sort of meetings on zoom or on teams but actual meetings in you know, virtual worlds or uh, studying in a virtual campus and virtual uh, classrooms, which again, not just the sort of half-assed Blackboard or Zoom class boards where people are staring at blank uh, squares, but something more uh, more immersive. Uh, what's so freaky about that? Why isn't that just great? Well, the, we did discuss some of the folks who are critical of um, that. And I think we, you know, we have a in our group, we've uh, had a re recent talk about social media, for instance. So you see some of the same concerns about, you know, is electronically mediated communication alienating? Are people losing people skills? Are they becoming more depressed? Are the algorithms feeding them more negative information? And all of those same questions are applicable in the metaverse. But then we also talked about uh, Chalmers' recent book, Reality Plus, um, which I think is a, a strident argument on the other side, which is that, look, um, and the argument that I've made in the past, that people write, have written letters to each other for a very long time. And if you form a relationship through uh, correspondence, how real is that? I mean, that's a lot thinner than actually spending you know, a couple hours uh, gaming beside them in World of Warcraft or something like that, you probably have a much richer relationship with someone through that. And so um, if the idea of just not having a face-to-face -face relationship with someone is the problem and makes it not real, then a lot of what we do is not real. Um, and a lot of the work that we're doing now, because we're if those who work from home, like me, um, a lot of that work is not real. So we had to address that kind of is it real question, and that's what Chalmers really forcefully argues for. And, yeah. I, and I, th I think there's also, you know, you mentioned, you know, not only work, but also education near. I think there is then a broader question, too. And because we've now experienced the pandemic where we had to move completely online, those in the academic sphere have had to sort of grapple with this experience of whether or not educational experiences are as robust in virtual spaces. Um, and in many ways, it, it has proven to be um, not as successful as, as in-person educational experiences, but at the same time, it also uh, is, is more accessible um, and also allows opportunities for folks who otherwise might not be able to engage in certain educational experiences to do so online. And so thinking about how those virtual experiences could be built 
um, thinking about the question of physical co-presence and whether or not that is a necessary component of you know, a sort of collaborative classroom environment or a collaborative working environment. Um, in some ways, this is almost a question of how the technology itself can be built to, to replicate that kind of presence, um, to be felt in a way that feels like we are legitimately in a room together. Um, mm -hmm. Even over Zoom, there, you know, right. there's, a, there's a way in which we, you know, there still is a distance between us, but, you know, in the moment that we could have haptic feedback and um, a much more immersive environment, perhaps our, our feelings of distance might change. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's interesting and going to Jay's uh, comment earlier about correspondence and how real of a relationship that is. I mean, look, we're recording this podcast uh, uh, virtually. And in some ways, given our schedules, probably this is the condition for being able to uh, do this podcast. And uh, uh, so that's a you know interesting example. And it would be nicer to have probably uh, would be nicer to have that more immersive and to kind of feel more present with each other, uh, even though Zoom is not uh, bad. I would have to put on pants then, right? <laughs> <laughs> but but you know, I guess. Jay, the same question applies there as applies about the correspondence. Um, is the condition for us being able to enjoy the podcast, is the condition for the correspondence to be able to enjoy each other some kind of knowledge that part of their relationship is going to be face-to-face? Uh, uh, -face? Does that, can, do those condition uh, each other? So part of why I'm totally fine doing a lot of my work on Zoom is knowing that I go in twice a week and do some of my work you know, uh, uh, not on Zoom. The logic of this uh, is probably trending towards doing more and more stuff virtually. So for both of you, uh, uh, isn't there a, uh, and I know we discussed this in the paper, but I want to uh, linger on it a little bit more. Isn't there something essentially alienating about the increase of um, non-physical interaction? Aren't we embodied beings that need embodied communication well uh, let me just say i have a very low gag reflex and there are very few things that um you know that perturb me about future shock um i did see a story this week that which made me think that we had um uh, dropped the ball and addressing one aspect of this issue which is that i saw a story about a woman who left her husband for an online chatbot relationship <laughs> and replica the company that the leading chatbot companion company, they just announced that they're going to remove their not safe for work sex tier of chat. And I suspect that that's because they're coming under, you know, they're beginning to see that the consequences of providing this kind of a service um, are uh, that they're in over their head. Um, and I think for a lot of people, the idea that virtual sex or virtual, you know, virtual intimate relationships would supplant face-to-face -face relationships, which one might, if you believe that porn, online porn has had the dramatic effect on sexuality that it probably has had, um, that may already be happening. And I, and so the question is, well, you know, how much of a problem is that? That, that is the place where I think we, we, we didn't address that in the paper, but I think for me, the idea of, am I really comfortable with a future in which people don't have face-to-face -face sex anymore? They just, um, you know, cyber chat each other. I don't know. Yeah, you know, as, as an extension of that, there's been a sharp increase in, in loneliness, which um, despite all our connectivity technologies that do exist that allow us to engage with one another, we've, we've seen a sharp increase of loneliness. Um, and it isn't clear to me that the development of, you know, increasingly advanced technologies that would allow us to be in virtual spaces with each other would necessarily mitigate that kind of, that feeling of loneliness. Um, and on top of that, too, there there is a maybe this is just anecdotal, but I think perhaps you know you you both feel similarly. There is also this feeling of um, almost an easier ability to abdicate responsibility when things are done digitally or virtually rather than in person. Um, you know, there's sort of a there's a distance between myself and others in a way that doesn't make it the same as the kind of face to face interaction that feels like my responsibility towards them somehow doesn't feel as as real. Um, um, so 
I, I, I agree. It's, it's not a, it, there's, there's not an easy answer here. And I do still feel queasy about um, sort of saying we can just do away with face-to-face -face interaction. Uh, yeah. of, of course, the, the sense of obligation that we feel, the, the particularist obligations that we feel to people that we actually know or see face-to-face, -face, as opposed to the more distal relation, social relationships, that's not necessarily a moral cognition on our part, right? That mm -hmm. if we become more, if we were treated everybody as if they were a distal relationship, we might be more consequentialist and logical. Sure. But, yeah. Are there are there some uh, moving a little closer to the territory that we cover uh, in the white paper? Are there some industries where um, the metaverse and uh, uh, increased virtuality are more promising than others. What, which areas uh, of the um, economy, uh, to uh, put it briefly, are you most excited about for uh, this technology? I think uh, worker training is one of the places where there's already applications, especially of augmented reality, but also virtual reality. I mean, we've had driver simulations, flight simulations for a very long time, and uh, a lot of um, uh, the military and uh, corporations are beginning to try to use these tools to train workers. So that's one. Yeah, the other area I would say is gaming. I mean, this is also another area. So it's it's not just in terms of production, but also consumption as well. Thinking about how large video games and the video game industry has grown, right? And now far outpaces Hollywood as sort of the, you know, one of the dominant mechanisms of consumption. And so I think this is obviously another area that's going to be dominated in the future by virtual reality. Yeah. I, I think a lot of our paper assumes that this is going to be more, far beyond gaming. Right. If it was just a, an aggregation of gaming platforms, I don't think our concerns would be the same. But yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, another another one that kind of uh I think interestingly uh plays out the uh, techno progressive um uh, approach, uh, uh, Jay, and I know that we've talked about this uh, in the past, is uh, increasing uh, access and perhaps increasing uh, uh, the kind of uh, intensity of experience that uh, uh, people with accessibility uh, challenges and problems uh, have, uh, or um, uh, in some cases that older people have. Uh, so sort of uh, providing a um, upgraded set of experiences to people who have uh, uh, trouble uh, moving around. Uh, I know there's an interesting, uh, the, the one interesting optimistic uh, episode in uh, um, Black Mirror has a, a, a has a, a version of this. What, what's that one called? Do you remember? San Junipero. Yeah, San Junipero. Um, have you seen anything uh, interesting uh, about that or thought about that of what, um, uh, what this might uh, mean for older people or for people uh, with uh, uh, mobility restrictions? Yeah, just to, to say about San Junipero, they had um, a woman who had been comatose most of her life in a bed with virtual, being able to live in a young, fully capable body in a virtual reality, and there she falls in love there. Um, so. Uh, I don't think we're close to that particular technology that requires some brain machine interfacing that we're not close to yet. Um, but uh, yeah, thoughts, Alex? Yeah, um, I think that, you know, the question of accessibility, um, this has been a particular issue. I know some folks working on questions about accessibility, the metaverse and its relationship with education. Um, and so, access to virtual reality technologies also can prove very useful to folks who otherwise would not be able to participate in certain kinds of educational opportunities. Um, and, and then we get into sort of broader questions too, I think about, um, you know, accessibility questions about how one is represented in the metaverse and questions of identity play and the capacity to be able to, you know, um, perform certain roles and different roles and take on other roles that you otherwise um, wouldn't be able yeah. to represent in the physical world. And I think that leads to all kinds of, um, you know, 
both at the same time, sort of troubling questions that we get into a little bit in the paper about harassment and, um, you know, threats of violence and so on and so forth. But also at the same time, this sort of broader question of identity play and, and the capacity to be able to, um, you know, uh, portray oneself and have experiences that otherwise might not be accessible to people. But, yeah. but, you know, you, your question also just points us back again to the continuity of these issues. The ADA was adopted in, what, 1991, the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it says in there that workplaces have to make reasonable accommodations for people with disabilities. But there's, we've never been clear about what a reasonable accommodation is. Now, mm -hmm. in, the, in the wake of COVID, people are saying, hey, the reasonable accommodation is me to stay right here in my chair and do my job and you, and you deal with it, that I'm never going to come to the office. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, sort of on a slightly more abstract level, uh, Alec goes to your point earlier that there can be a other side to the loneliness question, namely that uh, suffering from a disability or suffering uh, uh, from an age-related limitation or being part of an excluded uh, group can actually uh, generate a great deal of loneliness and alienation if most of your activity is focused in the real world. And so this can sort of, uh, again, with some, uh, you know, technological developments still waiting to happen can actually represent a real uh, opportunity. Uh, I guess the other context in which people uh, uh, have been excited about this and have also been angry about this is in higher education. Some people have uh, actually uh, loved uh, remote learning, uh, mainly older students juggling uh, uh, work and life. What they haven't loved is how crappy the technology for online uh, learning uh, has been. So I've heard from many students that they would be very excited about an upgraded version uh, of Zoom learning. Um, so maybe, uh, maybe this is a good uh, point to segue into the question of uh, what do you guys think are the main uh, challenges for um, regulating uh, uh, the metaverse? What do you uh, what do you see as the main areas that require uh, regulation? Well, we don't talk a lot about the first point that we make, but it is a more general point, which is that to the degree to which this technology develops in the future and becomes an avenue for access to important social goods is the degree to which it's important to ensure universal access. And we've had a debate about uh, broadband access in the United States, which is weaker than a lot of other countries like South Korea or places like that. Um, and clearly, you know, if we want Nebraskans to participate in the metaverse, they're probably gonna have, a, have to have access, equal access to broadband access. That's one question. Yeah, yeah, I think the question of the digital divide is, is really important. And again, it gets to the, previous point that I made about this is obviously we're, we're speaking about the metaverse here, but but also this focuses on sort of older problems related to the internet itself. Um, you know, 98% of urban re residents have have access to, to, to broadband internet access. Um, but that number drastically drops when you consider rural residents with only about 69% of rural residents in the United States having access to, to broadband internet. Um, and you know, there's that that digital divide leaves a sort of digital underclass um, that's left out of important economic, social, and educational opportunities. And I think the COVID nineteen pandemic has made that you know even more salient. Um, and those divides cross racial lines too. Um, you know, fifteen percent of households with school aged children lack access to high speed internet connections. Um, and that includes only 10% of white households, but 25% of black households and 23% of Hispanic households. So again, the, you know, I think thinking about this question of the digital divide is incredibly important in ensuring that any of the benefits that would come with access to the metaverse have to begin with these socioeconomic concerns of guaranteeing uh, you know, universal access to, to right. broadband internet. At the beginning of this project, Nir suggested that we buy half a dozen VR headsets to play around with. And I was like, uh, 30 grand to, to just experiment. So it's like, you know, even we could not afford um, right. access in this particular case. Well, you know, I, I, I was trying to get my uh, kickback from uh, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> you spoiled it for me, Jay. Uh, um, 
So, um, so the digital divide, you know, just to sort of, uh, uh, you know, connect the obvious dot here, part of why that's such a big issue is because this is a data rich technology, far more data rich than the current internet. So a lot of data needs to be uh, uh, going through to experience uh, 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 virtual reality. Um, so uh, a couple of questions that I know that we spent time on um, in the paper, you know, I, I think back uh, to uh, Meta's uh, original convert, uh, original uh, commercials uh, on um, the metaverse. And what I was uh, so struck by uh, at the time, whenever this was a year and a half ago or something like that, were uh, how distraction laden the environments that they presented were. So there were like floating dolphins and, you know, parrots. It was like super trippy. Uh, and seeing what um, uh, social media and our uh, increased engagement with screen is already doing to our focus capacities, is there a uh, special kind of concern that the metaverse work play education on virtual reality would make people just more distracted than they already are? You know, I, I think there's an argument to be made that there's the possibility for a kind of intensification of addiction and and distraction mechanisms. But I think that's largely, again, focusing on the sort of socioeconomic issues. And, and I think ultimately, incentives are what matters. And insofar as the the internet is built on the advertising model, um, you know, that relies on private ownership, incentives for attention capture, addiction mechanisms, the collection of data, for the sake of advertising, that is going to reinforce those kinds of addictive and distractive qualities. And so I think one of the things that we propose in, in the paper is focused on questions of privacy and autonomy related to data, the data that's collected on um, using metaverse technologies. And so for us, thinking about the ways that we can protect um, the privacy and autonomy of individuals in the metaverse, that is a key concern. And we have different ways of, of thinking about that. You know, one way is to think of sort of a um, the digital dividend model, right, which sort of suggests that people should be remunerated for the data that's collected. Um, but really, in many ways, that doesn't deal with the issue of, of privacy, but rather just sort of compensates for what some of us might see as a violation of privacy. Um, and at the same time, then there's worries about the instrumentalization and kind of the commodification of data in ways that we might decide are just, you know, uh, antithetical to our values. You know, should every aspect of our lives be datafied and commodified? I think a lot of us would say, you know, we have good reasons to protect certain aspects of our lives from being subject to datafication. Um, but then there's other models too in thinking about, you know, the GDPR, which is the General Data Protection Regulation um, developed by the European Union. Um, institutes certain data protections. Um, and the EU sort of consistently is the leader in, in terms of this territory and thinking about data privacy and autonomy. Um, but even so, I think thinking about having more robust models that even include things like um, data trusts or data repositories, which are sort of democratically governed models that are these autonomous legal bodies that can ensure safe democratic oversight of, of data, I think, is something that we need to, to consider and we talk about uh, a little bit in this paper. Just so on your question about um, distraction, educational distraction, um, one of the things as an educational statistician that I've always found fascinating is that the number of hours that American high school students and college students reported studying outside of class <clears throat> declined gradually from the 70s until about the late 2000s, and then it started to rise again. And I have my kids were in high school at the time and they would come home at, you know, five o'clock and they would get in front of their computer. Now, in the past, if they would have tried to do their math homework in front of the TV, we would have said no. But the, all the homework was on the computer and they would then it would be midnight and they would say, well, I haven't finished my homework yet. And it's like, well, I don't think that that's all that you were doing. Right. So I think part of the problem is not that, you know, you could imagine that a virtual classroom could be locked down in ways, in the same way that you can put on a, you know, a cell phone blocker in a, in a physical classroom. But as long as people have access to the internet, 
um, it's going to be very distracting. And, the, and I don't think that's something that the educational process can really control very well. We need to come up with ways for ways to encourage and enhance people's self-control in this regard, but it's really a matter of individual character of your ability to say, no, I'm going to do this instead of this right now. Yeah, yeah, I could actually totally see, and I want to get to Alex's uh, uh, point about uh, data controls, but I could totally see an argument for the metaverse being less distracting as a class word setting rather than more, namely all the kids who are shopping online uh, because they're a little bit bored to listen to my monotone voice in a face-to-face uh, -face, uh, lecture, all of a sudden are, you know, if it's a history class can be immersed in a uh, uh, background or uh, in an environment that's supposed to be connected, uh, you know, to the history lesson they're learning, like a virtual ancient Athens, and, you know, maybe for a change, the class actually wins the race for their uh, uh, attention. Uh, so, you know, that that argument could certainly uh, go both ways. Uh, Alec, just going back to your uh, uh, comment about, um, you know, regulating the kind of data that's collected, I guess the obvious background point is that the potential for collecting data is exponentially greater in virtual uh, environments than in uh, two-dimensional environments. So there's an inherent risk there. You can, if you're wearing headsets, you can collect connect, collect biometric data as you can uh, uh, track our biometric responses to stimuli in a way that would be very attractive uh, uh, to advertisers. So the question of, um, uh, surveillance, so-called surveillance capitalism uh, sort of goes on steroids here with uh, uh, with the metaverse. Yeah, and I, and I think the, the question uh, about datification and privacy is tied to this question of distraction because ultimately there are structural incentives to continue to push for increased data collection, which requires people constantly engaging digital platforms, right? This is currently what we see right now with, you know, social media use. And I think um, insofar as the same kind of corporate model is what is going to dominate the metaverse, I see a sort of natural extension of that kind of model. Um, and I suppose one of the things here that is interesting between the distinction now between virtual reality and augmented reality is we could imagine a world where, um, you know, in which we have something like Google Glass, there is this capacity for continual advertisements as we sort of walk through our everyday world. You know, at the moment, we're, we're lucky enough that this thing only operates here in our pockets or on our computer screens, but now the moment that we have something sort of situated on our faces where at any moment we could be advertised to and there's constant data feedback that these companies have access to, the, the question of privacy really sort of ramps itself up. Um, and so I think here there's there's another question about, you know, you know, there's there's some thinking that we've we've sort of abdicated the idea of privacy altogether, right? That we sort of live in because we live in the internet age, privacy is just out the window. And I think what we definitely want to say in in this paper is that um, you know, up to this point, that's maybe how the internet has functioned, but that is to all of our detriment. And we want to think about different ways of, of sort of maintaining and protecting that privacy and autonomy for, for workers and consumers. Yeah, I think this also relates to the question about whether this is a different kind of tech than before, a more dangerous kind of tech, because, you know, you can look at the history of human civilization and say, it was all an attention economy. It was a propaganda as an attention economy, religion's an attention economy, journalism. But is it different when it can be gamified in this with sec one second feedback between your behavior and the rewards that it's giving you? And I think it is different. And then does that difference then mean that this is actually more like crack cocaine than a newspaper? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you uh, combine uh, the capacity of virtual reality to collect biometric uh, uh, data through, for example, uh, headsets with the very soon arriving uh, brain machine interface uh, uh, technologies that I'm 
uh, hearing have just been reduced, for example, to the size of uh, uh, earbuds uh, and collecting um, uh, electronic signals. So, so essentially, you're getting very close to uh, mind reading on uh, uh, these kind of technologies, which really does raise a whole different set of questions. Um, about uh, it's, it's implicit in the TikTok uh, debate right now. It's like China has banned every conceivable Western app for precisely these reasons that they think that there's data surveillance capabilities in them. And now we're thinking, well, maybe since you have obviously used TikTok in the past to, for instance, identify journalists who were talking to Chinese embassy officials, maybe we should take the same look at TikTok. But you know that's just that's the existing tech. That's not even the biometric stuff that you're talking about. Yeah. So well, let me ask you uh, about the other side, uh, uh, Jay and Alec, of uh, uh, the corporate control uh, of the metaverse. Uh, corporations like uh, Meta and uh, probably um, Apple and Google are going to want to get into this game as well. Uh, Zoom are going to uh, control the platforms for virtual interactions. Um, what kind of uh, worries and regulation needs does that give rise to? So for example, you know, in our industry, if uh, Zoom is going to be in control, they'll probably shut down our podcast. But uh, if Zoom is going to be in control of the platforms in which a class uh, happens, and that, uh, you know, class has a uh, controversial content, either controversial for Zoom or so controversial not for Zoom that Zoom worries about its own commercial uh, standing. Um, does the metaverse uh, controlled by commercial companies raise academic freedom or freedom of speech questions that need to be regulated? Well, th this just brings us to the interoperability question, which is, for instance, if Zoom said you couldn't use a PowerPoint in a Zoom presentation, you had to use Zoom's version of PowerPoint, that would be a violation of interoperability. And um, we have these issues and these skirmishes all the time now. So the question, one of the questions in the future is whether once you enter a virtual space or once you're using a particular augmented reality platform, you can't interact with the others or do things with the others. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess my question was Zoom hears that I have Jay giving a guest lecture in my class and Jay is a transhumanist and transhumanism just became controversial. So Zoom says not on my platform, thank you very much. Which you know, as you know, versions of this, not with transhumanism, but versions of this happened during the pandemic, right? Some talks were shut down by uh, uh, Zoom and other companies because the speakers were deemed to be, were deemed to be too, uh, too problematic. Um, if more and more of these interactions, not to talk about work interactions, happen on these platforms uh, that are owned by uh, corporations, do we need to rethink some of our um, free speech, academic academic freedom uh, uh, regulation for a world that works like this? Well, you you know, to a certain extent, this. As you mentioned, this has already happened. I mean, this is the question regarding Twitter and whether or not Twitter should be recognized as something akin to a public utility, right? So the moment that this sort of becomes the forum on which we're all engaging in our in our speech, should now this be something that's recognized as a public utility that can therefore be governed and protected with some sort of free speech protections? Which now, we point to at the end of the essay about democratizing governance and ownership. Right, exactly. And so I think this question of, you know, um, you know, corporate control and authoritarianism, worries about freedom of speech, all gets to this broader question, these questions that we, we raise in the paper about competition and antitrust. Um, there's concerns about how network effects, you know, which, you know, network effects take hold when the usefulness of a certain good increases, you know, with other users adoption, you know, this is how digital platforms tend to function. And so, you know, we need to think seriously about whether or not we need to think about different models of, of the kinds of platforms um, that will be developed in the metaverse. And so, you know, we talk, you know, about different kinds of models that we can think of. We can think of sort of private models that have a kind of democratic governance mechanism, a kind of co-determination model um, and something like that has, you know, those kinds of um, 
proposals have been floated, even towards things like Twitter, thinking about, you know, sort of generating mini publics that can kind of co-determine free speech questions on something like Twitter. Um, but there's other models too, and thinking about cooperative alternatives. So, you know, digital platforms in the metaverse that could be owned by those who actually um, use and operate um, the platforms themselves. But again, thinking about too, this sort of question of whether or not these kinds of things ought to be thought of as public utilities. Um, and I think, you know, you raising the question here about free speech really gets to this, this issue about, you know, should this be something that is governed democratically? And we point to those kinds of questions at the end of the paper. Yeah. And, and just to reiterate, we also emphasize the importance of European regulation on this because the Europeans have been, they have adopted the AI Act, they've adopted um, the new Digital Services Act, and these acts directly address these questions about um, ensuring that uh, platforms have ways of controlling harassment and um, crime, that they have governance mechanisms that are adequate and so forth. So I, I think the, we, there's a lot of hope in the field that uh, Europe, well, for, at least the hypesters are afraid of Europe because they don't want it to slow the market down. And the Luddites are uh, pissed off with Europe because they're not just banning stuff. But the ones in the middle uh, say, oh, thank God for Europe because they're going to set the standard for everybody else. Yeah. I mean, the, you know, the free market, the classic free market argument here is interesting, namely the market, the argument that if we did start thinking about these platforms as public utilities for for good policy reasons, would that uh, dampen innovation? Would that dampen the uh, sort of uh, incentive uh, of uh, these companies to innovate? A little bit like the uh, you know, argument about uh, uh, the drug market, the, the about drug companies and uh, the development of uh, medication, namely that part of the incentive for developing the most cutting edge medications is the inordinate amount of money that you can make on them. And that that's part of why so many of them in the end are developed here. Um, what's, um, what's, what's your sense on, on that? What's, is there, is there a risk? I'm I'm an old social democrat, so um, I, I, I know you both are. But yeah. <laughs> I mean, I I think that I think that there are lots of ways that we can prime the innovation uh, ecosystem, um, public investments in basic research and uh, adequate regulatory environment and antitrust regulation. All of that would help with this market, but whether um, the you know the F FCC would have come up with, you know, if you had told the FCC, invent a metaverse or invent an internet or whatever, we, we did, I guess, we invented the internet, but then everything else that happened was, was driven commercially. So. Sure. Yeah. You know, there's, there's different ways of thinking about this. I mean, there, if you sort of take a cooperative approach, you could allow for, you know, democratic governance of these kinds of digital platforms, but at the same time, they're within a market system that would still allow for sort of, you know, uh, competitive, um, innovative practices. So that's that's one option. But I will also say, you know, the the digital sphere is one in which monopolies are pretty consistent, or at least, you know, oligopic con conditions because. Right, right, exactly. And a lot of it is due to this network effect, right? Because these digital platforms are more likely um, to grow as users adopt them. And therefore, the utility that the users get from it come from being on the platforms that are most adopted. You really get these conditions that are antithetical to competition in the first place. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the current way that the internet functions even on the free market is antithetical to a kind of innovative practice. And then you think about, well, what are we innovating? Are we innovating for the sake of data collection and advertisement such that we continue to increase the kind of addictiveness and attention retention of, of these technologies? Or are we innovating in ways that, you know, allow people to engage meaningfully with each other, to engage in forms of meaningful work and so on and so forth? Um, yeah. Absolutely. 
Jay, I know you have a hard stop in a few minutes. Uh, let me maybe circle back to uh, uh, something that you uh, raised in the beginning. Uh, and you know, you're saying, I think correctly, that from a techno-progressive perspective, many of these seemingly uh, new questions about the challenges of technology are really old questions in uh, just the new guys. Uh, I wonder, for example, though, in the context of the metaverse, uh, can't we at least say that the old questions have been kicked up a notch? So, for example, with the interoperability issue, if you buy a suit, you can decide where you want to buy the suit, and that's that. Uh, and, you know, to some extent, you're right. If you buy an Apple version uh, of a product right now, you can't always use it on a non-Apple machine, or at least that used to be the case, and that's a sort of interoperability question as well. Uh, but if more and more of our activities uh, go on to um, uh, uh, the metaverse or virtual platforms, the interoperability from a mar marginal question uh, becomes a huge question, right? Because if you buy your avatar suit uh, on one platform, uh, you can't necessarily use it on another. Or if you get a credential on one platform, you can't necessarily uh, uh, use it on another. So even though it's the same question, uh, it's... Um, so much quantitatively amplified that maybe at some point that becomes a qualitative difference. What's what's your sense? I think that that's a broader question in at kind of SST studies um, about whether the Langdon winner question is when is politics so baked into a technology that it that it bribes the effects of the technology itself? And in this case, is there a point at which the exponential improvement or empowerment of, of a technology makes it qualitatively different from its predecessors? And uh, I think I'm open to that possibility. I just, you know, that when you start to dig into any of these questions as we did here, it just, it begins to evaporate in my hands, you know, why this would be that distinctly different. Um, but I do think that this uh, dopamine addiction question is one that we have to pay close attention to. And, you know, I'll say one final thing, because Jay, I know you have a heart out, but, you know, this question about whether or not um, this sort of ramps up or intensifies some of the questions about previous forms of technology. One of the things we didn't talk about, but that we do talk about in the paper is questions about workers' rights. And I think, you know, the, the development of the gig economy is an example of this sort of ramped up form of uh, technological innovation that has led to all kinds of um, trouble for workers engaged in the gig economy. And this is the kind of thing that I think we will continue to see with the development of, of the metaverse, um, where you know, gig workers are recognized as independent contractors and therefore don't have um, access to certain benefits as well as collective bargaining rights. And so I do think this is you know, a, a yet another example. And I will say for folks who are interested in reading the paper, you know, do take a look at our section on workers' rights too that points to these kinds of of broader questions about the intensification of work and and worries about how the metaverse will continue to sort of drive um, questions about workers' rights. Well, Jay, Alec, thank you both very, very much. This has been great. We will post the paper onto the show notes and please do go check it out. Thanks again. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you for listening to Ethics in Action. For more on this podcast and on the Applied Ethics Center, check us out at umb.edu backslash ethics.